0: The views expressed by any individual in this interview are entirely their own and are not necessarily shared by Denver Street Stories. Denver Street Stories is an active supporter in the LGBTQ community. We stand with the Black Lives Matter movement and as intersectional feminists, we support equity and equality for all peoples. Denver Street Stories supports sovereignty and land back to indigenous communities. We strive to actively deconstruct oppressive colonialist structures. Denver Street Stories. These are our stories.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Denver Street
0: Stories. We are with a professor, Thomas Nail, and Maurice Cerna, another student at Denver University. He is a professor of philosophy, a philosopher of science. Anyways, we today are going to be talking about capitalism and how it affects homelessness in America. This is an open-ended discussion. Ask any questions you would like. And other than that, we have Luca and Alex here to talk kind of more about Denver Street Stories and our project.
2: I appreciate y'all being here. Thank you very much. Uh, Denver Street Stories uh, started small, and we still are small, but we're growing, and you guys are helping with that, so I really appreciate it a lot. We amplify unhoused and homeless voices, and this is kind of a uh, unique thing that we're doing. Hopefully, we can have more community events, so I really appreciate y'all being here.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I think we can get started. Um, yeah, thanks, to Maury, for helping out, and Thomas, for coming.
3: Awesome. Okay, so I guess, can you tell us how capitalism is
0: related to homelessness?
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah, thanks everybody for coming. Thank you to Luca and Alex for inviting me, and yeah, thanks for being here this evening. I'm gonna set a timer, because once I start talking, it's hard to stop. So I'm like locked in, but please do interrupt me if you have questions. Um, So yeah, I teach philosophy and I teach Marxism, and there's a lot of ways to talk about homelessness. um, There's, this is just one angle on it. Um, I'm going to say a few things about, yeah, capitalism, its relationship to homelessness. It's a kind of structural view. Um, There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of stories one could tell. This is one story about homelessness. Um, there is a chapter in uh, Marx's book Capital where this is a f- key feature of capitalism that it, it, it produces homelessness. It is a structural feature. It's an essential feature. Um, it's not an optional thing that you could have capitalism without homelessness. Uh, it is a category generated by capitalism itself. Um, it's not something that can be removed. So, okay, but, so, as a structural analysis, I also find that it's hard to say um, exactly just only about capitalism and homelessness because it's not like capitalism exists, exists in a vacuum. There's two other things. So, um, I have my timer set for about 30 minutes. I'm going to try to spend, I don't know, maybe about 10 minutes each on uh, the first. So there's three really big structural features. Um, the first one is capitalism. Uh, homelessness is a structural feature of capitalism. There's also, in the case of the uh, American context, there's two other really big things. One is the history of liberalism uh, and, and the police and the state um, as part of this story and their relationship to capitalism and homelessness. And then there's the third big thing and that is the history of Protestantism uh, in America. I'm not saying everybody has to be Protestant or they even realize this is part of a Protestant history but there very much is an influence that works in a synergy with both capitalism and liberalism together, shape this category called homelessness. <laughs> um, so first category is capitalism. So in this chapter of capital, Marx lays out um, a couple reasons why homelessness is a structural and essential feature of capitalism. One of them, so this is the first key feature of capitalism, is that it's, it's driven by markets. Markets rise uh, when there's demand for things, and then they fall when that demand is gone. One of the historical examples Marx gives here is the uh, American railway system. When capitalism requires, so for instance, there wasn't a railway system. Let's just say hypothetically you had an economic system where there was 100% full employment. Everybody was employed. Okay, that's not going to happen under capitalism. That's another structural feature. Unemployment is a structural feature of capitalism as well as homelessness. Those two things are related. So you have a market. Uh, let's just say if you had full employment and then there was an opening for a new market where are you going to get the workers for this new market so this is the case of the railway system in early americas there is a lot there is employment there are people there but there are not enough people to build a giant railway system across the country so where are you going to get those people and mark says this is this is a this is a perennial feature of capital capitalists are constantly generating new markets they're not doing it because there's always a need for it, but they are always generating new markets. Those markets rise, those markets fall. Marx describes it as like fits and starts, he says. Nobody can kind of predict what a market will do, what the next market will be, how many people will be needed, but eventually that market will start to decline. There will be less need for it. When the railway system is done, what do you do with all the people you hired temporarily to do that? They are fired, okay? It needs, so capital needs to have a reserve. And the word that Marx uses here, it's not that this he doesn't mean this in any negative way in writing capital he's often kind of projecting you know imagining what the capitalists think about the situation so it's not a fair depiction of what marx always thinks but it's a depiction of marx thinking through capitalism how it works he calls it the surplus population other times he calls it the industrial reserve labor army this is a group of people who are structurally unemployed so that when a new market comes into existence like a railway system there are people waiting for a job Okay, so in this, in case of early America, there may be some people waiting for jobs that are unemployed, but it is so many people that it often needs to take those people from elsewhere. And historically, I don't know if anybody knows where American capitalists got, because these are private companies subsidized by the government to build this giant railway system. Anybody know where they got the workers? Yes, the Chinese. Um, other Asian countries, but China was a huge one. And then, so they had all of these Chinese workers building the railway system. And it, I mean, it's a many, many year process. The Chinese workers are working and they decide, eventually they're like, well, this, we're basically live here now. I mean, this is like generations of people who are living in America. Should we, you know, we're, we're gonna stay. And so the the US government was like, no, well, I mean, whatever. The racist culture around America was like no, and then pressure on the U.S. government to say we're going to invent a law just called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which means you you have to leave, you cannot stay here. And many of those, many many of the Chinese people went back to China. Others actually just went across the border into Mexico. And I mean, maybe you know this or not, but along the northern border of Mexico there are. There are these kind of interesting hybrid Chinese communities of, like, you have generations of Chinese people that were sort of kicked out of America and ended up in Mexico. Anyway, the the second wave, okay, I'm getting the history of U.S.-Mexico residents, but the point is that the second wave after the Chinese was Mexican immigrants because they thought, well, if the Mexican immigrants will go back after we use them and the railway is done, they'll go back home. That didn't really happen either, which has resulted all kinds of racist legislation. I digress the point is those markets are often taken from immigrant communities around the world so if you need a population that doesn't have to be locally unemployed but it does have to be in general unemployed so that population can happen all over the globe and historically it has okay so when the so markets come and go and fits and starts they suddenly need a lot of workers to do something and then it's done the demand is gone the railway system is done and then everybody's fired again where do they go Marx says, well, this is what, this is what they are. They are a surplus population. They are not meant to go someplace else necessarily. They're meant to wait in poverty, homeless, starving until a new market begins. So they're just waiting around. And if you think this is like, oh, well, this is kind of, you know, they didn't intend that, it's not that on the nose. Well, here's another great example from 19th century England that Marx gives. You have this case of a textile factory and you have these huge communities around the textile factory. So these are workers who are living and working in the textile factory. They are weaving and you know, and, and yeah, making textiles. But then suddenly the price of wool goes up and it's no longer profitable for the company to keep making textiles. So they say, well, you're all fired, basically. We're shutting the factory down temporarily until the price goes down and it's profitable to make textiles. And they're like, well, what are we going to do? We're like, well, you're going to wait here. You're going to just wait. We're like, we're going to starve. Like, what are you talking about? We don't, how are we going, where are we going to live? And like, how are we going to survive? Well, that's your problem. Like, you you have to wait here until the factory reopens. And they're like, no, we're going to like immigrate to like America or someplace else. We're going to leave. No, you can't. And so the factory owner went to the government and petitioned the government to b- bring in the police to force people to stay in the area, either homeless, starving, in poverty, waiting for the factory to reopen. And he won. And the law was passed, and the police showed up and kept the people in that community. This is, my point is, this is a very dramatic instance of where it's very obvious that capitalism needs people to be unemployed uh, and, and homeless and starving, waiting. Just waiting as a surplus, so whenever they ne- they're needed, they can be pulled. Does that make sense? If you have 100% employment, which in this is like well, whatever. I don't want to digress about socialist countries, but that was one of the projects was to create 100% employment so that everybody has money, uh, even sometimes whether they're working or pretending to work or not. But the point is everybody's getting that money. So you don't. But you have a very different situation on your hands. You're not trying to new, make new markets just for the hell of it. Okay, so that's step one of 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 capitalism is that it requires. Uh, It's because it's based on markets and nobody knows what the markets will do. Nobody can say we're going to employ you for sure and you'll be employed. You're going to you're going to be fired at some point. You're like that's just no nobody's in control of the fluctuations of markets. Okay, here's the second feature of structural unemployment um, and poverty around capitalism. Um, Once so capitalism has this surplus army now. This does want two things. One, it's always there for them when they need it, it's gonna, when it expands. Two, when those workers are unemployed in that area, it puts a pressure on the workers who are employed. Okay, it puts a pressure on them because the people who are working can be, their wages can be lowered. And if they don't like it, there's people waiting to take their place. Yeah, so having a large group of unemployed people is an is a, is a structural benefit. It's not even that capitalism's like, oh, it's unfortunate that some people have to be homeless and in poverty and waiting to be employed. No, that's that's not the perspective. Is is that's actually beneficial because it puts a pressure on the uh, people who are working. So then the capitalists can lower the wages. Furthermore, they can actually increase the hours of the working population. So that population can be worked harder, longer, and paid less. And if they don't like it, there's always somebody to replace them. Now. Here's, here's, this is where it gets really nasty <laughs> for Mark, Marx, is like, I mean, the, the chapter is filled with irony on these points, but he's like, what happens is the harder now, the, the, next step is once you start working the, the workers that you have harder, paying them less They're I mean, they're, they're, they're exhausted, but they're actually producing more because you're getting more out of them by working them harder. And if they work harder, then what happens if let's just say the demand is, is constant. You need less workers. You need less workers. So then you can fire them, right? So then you fire those workers that were unnecessary because you worked the workers harder. And Mark says, like, the dice are totally loaded. The harder the workers work, they're actually working for their own unemployment and poverty. They're working for their own homelessness because the harder they work, the more, the, the, the more people can be fired. And then the more people are fired, the bigger the surplus uh, population, the Industrial Reserve Labor Army. And the bigger the Industrial Reserve Labor Army, the more pressure they exert on the workers who are working you see this is a very nasty feedback loop of structural unemployment as a as a feature not as like a bug in the system it's a feature that actually increases the servitude of the workers the lowering of the wage the increase of the intensity Exactly. And they're making, yeah. And they're making more profits because they're now paying the workers less and working them harder. Okay. So that's like, that's, that's, that's one feedback loop. And there's another one that's added on top of this, which we often think of as being, I don't know, neutral or maybe even good, which is technological innovation and progress, uh, specifically in the case of development, same thing happens. Technological innovation increases the productivity. So now you now, now capitalists can do the same thing with less workers. What does that mean? Well, it means you don't have to pay those workers anymore. Here's one dramatic contemporary example. Um, Do you all know those Nike shoes uh, that like are socks? They're kind of like, I mean, okay, you don't think of them as socks, but they're like running shoes that are woven. Like they're not like, you know, like this shoe had to be like put together with like glue and stuff. But if they're woven together, you don't actually have to pay people to put the shoe together. You can have a loom, a giant mechanical loom that weaves the running shoe like a sock and it doesn't require anybody. So one of the things that Nike did was they used to have, I mean, way more factories uh, in Southeast Asia. They shut down all those factories, moved some of them actually back to the US in which you have now just huge mechanical looms generating shoes. Uh, and now they're like, our labor standards improve. We're not, in, we're not like underemploying children, you know, whatever. And so then they can both claim to be more ethical, but at the same time, like removed all those jobs and now technological innovation means they've increased the surplus army, which has put further pressure. So technological innovation um, is not just something of like, now we have cool sock Nike shoes, right? It's not just that. It's also that this was a, this was a specific innovation that actually increased, that sort of increased the population of unemployed uh, people. I have another. Question. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah.
3: So I worked with Amazon and Amazon just brought these beautiful electric vehicles, right? They have all kinds of gadgets and all of that is going into AI, artificial intelligence. Then obviously there's a spot where it's really empty where more than likely we're gonna have a robot take place of the person who delivers that package. Does that make sense? So the the truck is gonna be self-drivable to every stop, and then the robot is going to take that package and deliver it to the intended target. Right. So <laughs> right now, everybody is like super excited that we have this uh, <laughs> this electric vehicles. They are amazing, and mean they are amazing. They're going to do great for the environment, but te- technological uh, advancement is not necessarily for the person to work less. Is for the company, for Amazon, to make a bigger profit, and then let go of these thousands and thousands of delivery drivers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's kind of creepy to think even about like drones delivering things, but yeah, I mean, it increases the population of unemployed people who then put pressure on those that are working. So now they can be hyper exploited. Okay. You get the picture of this, this, this feedback loop. Um, so it's not under capitalism. You will never see there will never be the abolition of homelessness there will never be the abolition of poverty and rarely ever do politicians who are running for office ever talk about eliminating poverty it's because Everybody who's advising them is like, don't talk about that because you know where that goes is you're going to have to abolish capitalism because you really can't have capitalism and get rid of poverty. They're they're just inextricably linked. That is the history of those of those of those forms. That is the purpose. That was one of the goals of socialism, was just like to remove that uh, to remove poverty, to get rid of poverty and end poverty and homelessness. And that includes that that includes 100% in employment. Again, it's not a market system like capitalism, so. That's the that's the only alternative, or at least one of the realms of alternatives, that to get rid of, to to even remove the category of homelessness. Yeah. So I kind of have
0: a question then. How does that? How does like Marxism or communism take care of those people? Because there's kind of a large stigma people have of when they hear of Marxism or communism, they think, oh well, some person gets to just sit around and do nothing while everyone gets the same amount. So for people who may be like not as able-bodied or may have disabilities, how are those people taken care of? Um, in the sense of like, reducing or eliminating homelessness as opposed to how capitalism
1: would like, help them? Oh, that's a big question. It's gonna send us really far. I'm gonna have a short answer, but, but, but to be continued on this very big question, because there's a million ways that that could be done. I'll just throw out one that doesn't involve going back to exactly what the Soviet Union did and what other Soviet countries, or like, socialist countries tried to do. Um, I'll just say universal basic income is one answer to that question. So regardless of ability, regardless of anything, everybody gets enough money to survive. That food and shelter are basically things that we care about as humans, um, and we want everybody to have them. And that's possible, um, even if it involves some people working and other people just can't work. Um, Marx says very, very precious little about what communism is, and that's for a good reason. Is it's partly, it's, it's meant to be a kind of a project to be accomplished by all of us. So whatever we want that to look like, um, but it's a collective thing, and I think I think that's the goal. So that I that's the short answer for now. Is I think UBI is one answer to that question, um, and that would that would significantly um, affect the category of homelessness. Um, now we'd have to look at actual historical experiments to see whether they tra- failed and whether they could be improved. But I think it is one answer to the question that doesn't involve anything like oh let's let's try to reproduce Soviet communism. You know, like nothing like that. Um, but there are some features. Okay, maybe that's good for capitalism. Okay, so that's the first big thing is that it's a structural feature of capitalism. Homelessness will never be eradicated under capitalism. It's always going to be an issue under capitalism. I mean, it could be ameliorated to certain degrees. This was Keynes's project in the 1950s, a really important American economist who basically was like, yeah, capitalism does this. I know, I've read enough Marx to know that, Um, but he's an economist, he's like, that's why we'll have these like safety nets, social security. And he actually believed like automation the goal of automation was to get everybody working only ten hours a week, and now we have all the automation he ever dreamed of, and like everybody's working like average U.S. hours a week is something like forty-eight hours a week. <laughs> We're working more than ever with all the automation that Keynes had dreamed of. Okay, um, second feature is um, is liberalism and 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 police. So this is a this is this is a political uh, ideology and history that begins around the 18th and 19th century. I'm not going to go into all the history, I'll just say that that tradition, the goal of it was to be rid of kind of authoritarian uh, uh, and, and, and kings who were controlling the laws of the market, um, to free up the space for individuals in the market to freely exchange things, um, and that was the goal, it was a very reduced state, a state whose primary function was the protection of property. Um, that's because that's what you need to protect the market and that was what liberalism has has that's one of the core features of liberalism historically and it remains one of the key features today it's also one of the reasons why liberalism and capitalism go so well together is that capitalism needs police to protect private property if you do not have a police and a state to protect private property then you do not have capitalism it's just not going to work Um, you have to have private property and you have to have police protecting it okay so the its relation to homelessness is well, you kind of already probably know the relation of the police to homelessness. It had it, it part of the criminalization. So even though the economy demands structural poverty and homelessness, the police will actively criminalize and 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 yeah. So homelessness is then criminalized. But that is a very weird. I mean, on the face of it, it seems like really messed up and weird and strange. But if you look at the larger structural picture, it actually makes uh, there is a way in which this makes sense. Um, On the first i'd be like well that's just completely inhuman why would you create an economic system that required homelessness and then you create a police system that criminalizes that thing that you made necessary like how horrible is that okay it is horrible obviously um but there is a reason there is a logic for it and you know we can talk more about this because i think there's a bunch of features of it but one of those features is um setting an example for like a very dramatic, criminalized, punished, both performatively and really actually people going to jail, punishing people for not working. Now we'll just bracket for the moment. So all the reasons why people don't work or why people are homelessness are homeless. But the structural feature there is to set and show that everybody who thinks like, oh, well, you know, I'm free to do whatever. Well, you're not free to not work. Uh, That's the thing that you're not, and don't even think about that, because this is what's going to happen to you. So there's a degree to which homeless people are visibly criminalized and punished by the police so that people who are working are reminded this, this is your option. You can either be a criminal or you can work. So like, let's not pretend that there's some freedom to not work and how much freedom under liberalism and capitalism, what that actually means is you can work or you can die. You can work or you can be homeless and be criminalized and sent to prison and constantly accosted on the streets and so on. So there's, a, I mean, there's a bunch of features of this that we could talk about. I'm just gonna say a few of them. So one of those is just to criminalize any alternative to capitalism. Uh, that's the feature of it is to make anybody who's no, who does not want to participate in this or can't or whatever for any structural reason to make them into a criminal. The other feature is, um, just the transformation of the kind of architecture, anti-homeless architecture, benches that are sloped, spikes on various things. It's a dehumanizing process that is visible to everyone. Uh, the suffering of homeless people is visible on display, and that is for a reason, that that architecture is not always hidden. It is in plain sight. Everyone sits on, sits on those benches, and it's disturbing. <laughs> We've talked about like how messed up is to sit on one of those benches and realize what that bench is there for. It's a reminder to everyone that this is this is this is a, that that th- this is your alternative. Um,
0: yeah. Is this also kind of why in the 50s during Cold War we had that intense communist like anti-communist wave in
1: America? Oh yeah. kind of like brainwash people into being proponents of capitalism. <sighs> yeah, more than brainwash, like criminalized, straight up criminalized. Like so many people were sent to jail, people lost their careers, kicked out of the country like You ask really good questions that have very long answers that I'm trying to 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 say uh, not too much to go over my time limit because I'm sure I'm like probably approaching. But the, the short answer, yeah, McCarthyism is, was also part of that. But I mean, ongoing contemporary anti-socialist, anti-communist language, propaganda, architecture, just to remind you that there is no alternative. The, le- the harder it is to imagine any alternative, the better. And th- so that's, I mean, this is another project of kind of an ideological, cultural project to show that, that there is no alternative to capitalism. And in case you get any crazy ideas, take a look at these homeless people. Take a look at these prison populations. Just remember, that's your option. You can either work or you can die or you can be homeless. And that's that. I mean, like, and, but also, yeah, there is no real alternative either. So I think that those go hand in hand uh, for sure. Um, McCarthyism, yeah, and the U.S., it's, general historical anti-communist um yeah i mean yeah propaganda is like too small of a too small of a word
2: do, do you feel like some of the sentiment has changed recently in our country like that was from the 50s do you feel like people are especially the younger generations that you're teaching do you feel like they're kind of coming around to these different ideas and um, are more open to that and or do you see backlash still from even younger people about this
1: yeah, I think the I think it's I think it's partly generational. Like my dad grew up like hiding under his desk in school for like nuclear bomb drills. Like the Russians are going to bomb you, get under your desk, which is ridiculous, but that's part of the trauma of living through that generation. And so my dad still has those those feelings even though he's like never read a word of Marx. Uh you know, he still feels like that's horrible. They were going to bomb us and it's like, okay, well we were going to bomb that too. So like, I mean, But yes, the short answer is, I think, like, as generations move on, they sort of, they didn't grow up in that. They didn't, they did they weren't exposed to McCarthyism. Like, academics, just, you know, having, like, being myself an academic, academic freedoms were significantly curtailed under McCarthyism. I would never be able to teach a Marx class. So, yeah, the fact that I'm even teaching a class on Marx is, like, that, that exists. But, I mean... It's all, but it's also currently under threat. I don't know if anybody has read recently there's bills trying to be passed in Florida that would allow the state to essentially like dictate what would happen at university university curriculum. So they could decide that they didn't want any classes on Marxism or critical race theory or whatever and just ban it from universities, which is, you know, that's a historical precedent and it's very much related to McCarthyism um, where the state takes direct control over the curriculum. but yeah, we're, we're living in that stage where those moves are definitely happening and there's like a rise of fascism in America. Well, okay, we won't go down that road. Yeah.
4: Do you think technical, uh technological advancement and automation could force us to adopt a new system in the future as robotics and AI begin to replace humans for uh, lack of a better term, low skill jobs? How do you feel about
1: that? It very much could. I think Keynes' dream could have happened. There's every reason to think that automation could actually make it possible for people to work less than 10 hours a week. That's a completely realizable, was a realizable project. Now, whether I think that's gonna happen in the future, I don't think, well, let me just say that. I don't think just because we'll have more automation will necessarily mean that it will lead to a different social system. That won't be the thing that leads to a different social system. I mean, it might piss people off that they realize very quickly, like, all of this could be automated. My job right now could be, and like, the more and more people realize, they're like, my job could easily be automated. And then they're fired and they're like, my job was automated, right? Like, that experience, the more that happens, that might piss people off enough to do something, but it won't just be because of automation on its own. The social shift will have to happen because people are pissed and want something different. Yeah. Um,
4: Um, So do you think that uh, as we start to adopt more of this automation and less jobs are available, that it could actually force us into using one of these systems as the current system um, would no longer be able to support an economy with uh, companies not paying actual employees and having mostly automation instead?
1: That's a very good thought. I think it's totally possible. It's just... I wouldn't say that there's any guarantee of that because the example that i told of the textile factory in the 19th century that's exactly the kind of thing that i would anticipate capitalists to try to do is basically to police and enforce homelessness and to criminalize it at the same time so the more and more people become homeless the more and more people become jobless or their jobs become redundant that larger that surplus population gets which is the historical arc of capitalism to try to increase that surplus population It's also to try to police that surplus population and keep those people unemployed, which sounds absolutely messed up, except for the logic I just explained that there's you do at a certain point hit a critical point where there needs to be a consuming market for for the things that capitalists are making. But that had been solved historically, geographically. So through global globalization, where you have like a global consumer class, like in Western Europe and America. And, and, and can it, whatever, you have like a consuming class of people who are going to consume this, the, the, the things that are being made, and then you shift the surplus population to geographical other geographical regions. So capitalism basically became geographically, like globally distributed, so that you get this really hyper distinction between like the surplus population being disproportionate in some parts of the world. And not just like in America or or in a region or something, it just redistributed that all. So then you get these weird geographical populations of like people who seem like they can just consume anything, like in America or something like that. There's a huge consumer class of people, but that's completely been constructed as a geological answer to the problem of who's gonna buy all this stuff if everybody's unemployed. And the answer is Americans and we'll leave all these other populations to just remain in uh, unemployment. Anyway, there's more steps, but yeah, yeah.
2: Um, Do you think it could lead to more of an acceptance of UBI? Because it it makes me think of the tech industry. A lot of tech companies sometimes, you know, when companies have layoffs, sometimes IT people and various tech jobs are some of the first cut because they're also such high paying jobs. And people in that industry know to save for the times that they've been laid off. Um, And there's a lot of acceptance for UBI among tech people. Do you think that, you know, higher. you know, like they were discussing higher uh, unemployment throughout whole societies. Do you think that could lead to greater acceptance among the elites for UBI to maybe keep people from belling?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good intuition. I mean, neither of us could forecast that, but I think that's a very good, I think that that's a total possibility um, that that could happen. I mean, thinking specifically of like the huge layoffs at Facebook and Twitter and sort of like in these kind of technological, you know, social media positions, these people are now being fired. Like I know somebody who was just fired from PayPal after working there for like, I don't know, a decade and a half or something. And he was like, oh, I guess I don't work here anymore. They just like emailed him one day, they're like, you don't work here anymore. And he's like, okay, great. I could easily imagine him saying like, oh, well, like, yeah, this shouldn't happen. Like I shouldn't be in this position of not having a job. Like how am I gonna pay all of my bills? And I mean, he, I know this person, he's gonna be fine, but not everybody is going to be fine. And that will, that's gonna kick everybody into realizing and sympathizing With the idea that you could be unemployed at any moment that is the darker side of capital that is that the danger of it and the feeling of its stress and dangers are disproportionately distributed some people can handle being unemployed like that and others won't be able to but that could happen to anybody that is kind of the point even capitalists themselves not that i have much sympathy but even they could just lose everything they're like oh i had a company but the stock shrank and now i don't and now I'm going to go try to start another one. And maybe it works, or maybe it won't. Again, not a lot of sympathy, but they're in the same kind of boat because nobody knows what the market will do. But the dangers of it are distributed vastly asymmetrically such that some people will end up homeless and other people won't. Now the question is how much of that population will realize like, oh, how many times have I been fired? I'm actually going to realize that UBI would be a much better way to organize things and have a much more secure safety net uh, so that I and other people who might be in this position won't end up homeless. So, yeah, I think it's a good intuition, but...
3: Yeah, universal income?
1: Yeah. Uh. Going back to liberalism and how capitalism uh, would like to make homelessness illegal, or enjoys uh, homelessness illegal. Well, at what point did it turn into not necessarily a way to scare the workers, but also a scapegoat to say that the homelessness have done this themselves? If you watch a lot of local news, and see what types of people are reported as the criminals and it serves to reinforce that these people these individuals and in the indivi- the communities that these individuals reflect have done this to themselves rather than it being a systemic issue was that always part of the understanding or was this part of the you know the crack wave in the 80s and the Reagan era or did it go back even further historically yeah so this is this is the this is a great question that like really it it requires the third piece of this puzzle now, which is the history of Protestantism in America. Because that story of people are homeless and it's their fault. Um, they're they're just bad people who don't want to work or they're drug addicts or whatever like they are the ones responsible solely for this problem. The fact that the category of homelessness exists is never questioned. Of course there's this category, but it's it's only filled by the volition of these people who make it a thing because if they would stop doing this then everybody would be employed. That's ridiculous. It is not their fault even if they like many many people want to work anyway, there's a million reasons why uh, by why folks could end up unhoused but uh, one of the, one of the reasons of the narrative is, like, one story to tell is just straight up the, like, the commercial for police that most media is. Like, almost every piece of media is, like, that portrays police as, like, a commercial for, like, police. They're here to keep you safe. And, like, these people who are, like, dangerous and have done things, it's their fault, and they will be punished for it. But anyway, that narrative of personal responsibility, but also the idea that people have to... um. That they're personally responsible and that what it means to be a human being on this earth. Again, I'm not saying that people are like because they're Protestant. I'm saying this is just part of the historical ethic that has interwoven itself into both liberalism and to capitalism in a way that's very insidious that you might not even realize is going on, but that people might unreflectively have a Protestant ethic. Even if they would say, like, oh, I'm not religious. Yeah, but you might actually have this. And it wouldn't be by accident. It would be by the fact that Protestantism played a huge role in the development of the beginnings of American politics. Okay, so that's all there. But what is Protestantism and how does it participate? So you're right to identify the exact, like, consequence, which is blaming individual people. That's their problem. It's their fault. They're guilty for this. And then, of course, that is very... It it also works with the notion of criminality uh, that American police and American legal system has, which is individuals responsible for themselves entirely. It's their fault and so they can be held accountable in a criminal way. Individuals can be punished only if the individual, it's like their fault and you can attribute all the blame to a person, then you can punish them. But if it's like some massive, like very general systematic problem, it's like it would be unfair to punish one person because it's a systematic problem. But so anyway, that idea that first of all, that like crime and guilt is an individual thing, also related to Protestantism. Who, who is responsible for your soul on this earth? You, it's your soul, right? Who's gonna get judged at the end of time? You, in, it's an individualistic kind of religious perspective that fits very well with the political narrative of individualism in liberalism. So in liberalism, it's the same deal, except there's a formal equality before the law the law judges everybody equal don't laugh that's the ba- that's the basics of it okay liberals is supposed to be everybody equally judged in a formal way and in Protestantism it's the same but in a religious category in a religious category like every soul is judged like on its merits its own merits at the end so in Protestantism not only is there a kind of individualism of responsibility there is also uh, an important, it's not that Protestantism is about working for salvation. It's not like the harder you work, the better your chances of going to heaven. It's actually that like the narrative in Protestantism is that the earth has been given to humans to be stewards. And if you are not a good steward, then you, you are basically wasting God's gift. Okay, you are wasting your life. You're wasting your soul. Uh, and you are wasting the gift, the, the gift that God gave you. And in doing that, you are—you are—it's the waste that is the problem, um, which is to say, not working, not being frugal, not working hard. Life on Earth for Protestantism is not supposed to be a blast; it's supposed to be suffering. Okay? It's not—it's not, it's not like—it's not a utopia. It's a shitty world where you work hard, and through working hard, it's the—it's the experience that work is supposed to be painful. Does that make sense like you're not supposed to like love your job and feel like it's easy. You're supposed to suffer through it and that suffering is evidence of your hard workingness through diligence and difficulty to get to the end. So if it was easy you wouldn't be you wouldn't be fulfilling it. It like if the stewardship if God gave humans the stewardship and then we like oh that was a cinch. Like no, then it wouldn't be true stewardship in the eyes of Protestantism. Okay. So what that what that entails one of the consequences is that I think this is one of the reasons. So again, it's connected with both like the, the police and liberal system, but on the, on the personal level, it is also baked into American culture in a very insidious way such that people do not feel responsible or feel like I should help someone who's homeless, and, and one of the reasons for that, there's other reasons too that we could talk about, but one of the reasons is they haven't worked hard enough. Everybody works hard. And like early American politics, I don't know how much American history you know, but that was the story of like every American politician who had a chance of being a politician had to tell a similar story. I grew up in a log cabin. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Like that sounds like ridiculous now, but I'm telling you that was the story and it's related to Protestantism. The story can't be like oh like the Donald Trump story of like my dad gave me a bunch of money. Like that just that, that I mean. That, that wouldn't have flown historically. You would have to have started in your cabin and then worked your way up to being a politician to, to earn the respect of the, whatever, crypto-implicitly Protestant you know, voting population. So my point is is that this directly affects homeless people because it is, all, it is more likely that people who are not homeless will help a, an unsheltered animal than they will an unhosed human that shows you that what's going on there is not that that person is like some evil monster, but that they distinguish between the human who is responsible for their actions. They are homeless, it's their fault, I can't help them, because if I just gave them something, they didn't have to work for it. And if they didn't have to work for it, then they're not earning, okay, they're not thinking this consciously, I'm just saying, this is a big, this is a cultural systematic thing that ekes into the American psyche is that that person's responsible and they didn't earn it. I can't give them anything. So like even, you know, okay, whatever. Homelessness could be like, we could collectively decide, a lot of places have decided like, well, just buy people houses. Like, yeah, just let's pitch in, buy people houses. Like, okay, well, all right, Then that's one answer. But like, what keeps people from doing that everywhere all the time? Just like people don't have houses. Well, buy them some houses and give them some food. What keeps people from doing that is they feel like, well, they didn't earn it. It'd be sending the wrong message. Okay, so that orientation is a totally Protestant orientation, because on any other scale, and uh, one of those historically is, okay, last example, and then I'm going to stop talking we can have more discussion, but um, last example is that, so in the 19th century, when uh, Europeans were colonizing North America, um, some of the very first indigenous people that were brought to Europe to have conversations with europeans and whatever one of the first reactions of indigenous people in europe was they were absolutely horrified by the treatment of homeless people in europe they're like this is awful you people are savages like you how how could you do this like let people starve to death on the street and be be homeless like well yeah they didn't work hard enough for what they had like they didn't work hard enough That's the narrative of Europeans, but indigenous people, that is not the indigenous perspective for the most part. It was, you people are messed up and your societies are totally backwards. indigenous people, they're like, when we have people in our community who don't have food and housing, we give them food and housing. Why would we not do that? That doesn't make, that's just horrible. But you can see that it's partly that European Protestant work ethic plus capitalism and liberalism that justifies the absolute insanity of having a category of homelessness at all. The fact that it's even there as a possibility is already, that's like really the deep problem. Okay, now now stop.
0: Um, we could open up for questions if anyone has any more questions.
4: this is kind of going back to the McCarthyism and uh, kind of demonizing uh, communism. Mm-hmm. How do you think uh, that is kind of playing out today with the war going on with Ukraine and Russia and how that is kind of, like when we were talking about um, you know the generational kind of letting go of that or, or not having the McCarthyism and that like anti-capitalism super pushed in schooling, like how do you think mm-hmm. that's shifting now?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's still people in America obviously that are that are that have lived through and are old enough to have remembered all of the propaganda and anti-communist, anti-socialist stuff against Russia, and I think they hate Russia for that reason. And the Ukraine thing is like maybe on the side. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, this is just another awful thing about communism. But the thing is like Russia is like is like largely capitalist. Like, it's just an oligarchy of super wealthy, you know, whatever, you know? But like, that's the reason why the rest of us hate Russia. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like an evil, you know, it's an evil kind of basically oligarchic, absolutely unequal social system, which is now imperialistic, you know? And and, and like, those are the reasons why other pop. so like, I think it's a weird kind of thing for like people to all rally, like, waving the Ukrainian flag, but like for maybe really different reasons historically. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think you're right, that's like a weird kind of mixture that has ended up with like anti-Russian sentiment, but maybe from different different perspectives.
3: Anyone else?
4: So how do we go about convincing people that these ideals that are so deeply ingrained in our society are actually harming people and that there are realistic alternatives that could help benefit humanity as a whole, instead of um, continuing to push ideas that are thousands of years old, or hundreds of years old?
1: Yeah. I don't know, that's the million dollar question, right? Because on a certain level, it's just like, you can just easily lay out for anybody, you're like, you spend way more money paying police to harass and criminalize homeless people. If you took that money, and you bought them food, gave them houses, it would be way less than it currently costs to jail and, and like incarcerate. I mean, it's even messed up that like, no one has the right to food or shelter, but if you're a criminal, you do. And this is like, I mean, this is a really, I mean, just think how weird that is. That is really freaking weird that like, you have to be, you have to commit a crime to get access to food and shelter. I mean, especially, I mean, it's weird, but again, sorry, back to capitalism. That's just, but like, also, those are like there's a whole private prison industry that is basically subsidized by the government to to pay for those places. So they make tons of money off locking up homeless people, and that's not even to mention like prison systems that actually you know make money by having the inmates work for like a dollar an hour or something crazy like that. So the, the the way in which the prison system also works as a factory, um, and there's a way in which the prison system also. Okay, whatever. But there's one more one more thing to say about this, which is like Hannah Arendt, who was like a German Jew who fled and she's a political philosopher. She remarks on this fact after World War One, when you had huge like whole countries were being like just destroyed. That doesn't exist anymore. And you had all these refugees who no longer had a state not like one from one state to another, but they just don't have any papers or state whatsoever. And she's like, these people are basically unrecognized, many of them homeless, completely displaced, without country even, not just without job, but without country. And she was just remarked on how weird it was that, like, that, that you could have more rights uh, by breaking the law and coming before a court of law. But that just shows you how like really weird and kind of sick liberalism is, that though it's like you are equal before the law, but you must first approach the law as a criminal in order to become equal before it, because otherwise you can basically die and we don't care. We're not gonna save you from dying. We will have you die on the street and be brutalized by police. But until you come before the court, you have no right to representation, shelter, food, or anything. Like, just let that sink in as like, that is what liberalism is. Um, Yeah. So, okay, back back to your question. I'm sorry, I didn't get to your question. The question is like, how to lay that out for people such that they're convinced? i don't i don't honestly know i mean one method would just be i mean maybe this is just way too optimistic and rational about me but like as a university university professor i often i don't know get sucked into that where i'm like well you just hear the argument you realize that just makes sense right you realize financially even even if you're just a calculating machine you're like what's most profitable well what's most profitable is just give people houses and food and then like you know like that would be the best way of resource use of money maybe not profitable but it would be the best use of money is to do that like just bracket for a moment all of the apps like just a human need and compulsion to protect those people, but just like even financially it's stupid to be criminalizing homelessness. It's a ridiculous project. Um, It only makes sense for capitalists and it only makes sense in the context of Protestants. Now the question is how to convince people that they they should go with the more humane answer as opposed to embracing this weird crypto Protestant liberalism and investment in the capitalist system I, I don't honestly know what that will take. And I, I mean, I say that like not because I don't think there are arguments because I've just laid out a whole bunch of them. I've given you, there you go. There's the rational argument for the history of this, how arbitrary it is, how brutal it is, how much it makes no sense on any level whatsoever that even homelessness exists. It's ridiculous that it even exists. But like, if you're not convinced by that, like, I don't, you know, I don't know. There's lots of other affective strategies that I don't know. That we could get into because affect is definitely a part of politics as well. Cultural shifts and changes, maybe people, I'm not trying to be bleak here, but maybe some people just have to get old and die. Like generationally, you know what I'm saying? Like some people with like really fucked up ideas might just have to like die. And like younger generations, like we're still alive and we remember how ridiculous homelessness is. And like maybe, maybe you all will be just, just by default, that will happen and maybe those older people will just never change their mind about those things. And it's up to future generations to just like hang in there and wait for it. I mean, like maybe not wait for it, but like do stuff in the meantime. But like, I don't know. Sorry, that's not like a very uh, extensive answer. But I think it's am I'm I'm more interested to hear other people's ideas about how to how to like actually interrogate people's assumptions that I've laid out. Even though like, I'm not Protestant, like capitalism, I don't believe in it. I mean, I just live in it. It's like how do you get those people to realize that they're reproducing those systems, even if they don't think that they are? and then to stop doing it, but I mean, some of the answers are structural too. I'm gonna stop talking. That was a very good question, thank you.
2: All right, so my question was, you mentioned about putting people, like homeless people in jail, and then the government making money off of that. How do they make money off of putting people in jail?
1: Well, so it's not that the government makes money off that. So actually, I mean, the government, whatever, like anybody who pays taxes, uh, those taxes go to the government and then the government pays uh, like a subsidy for private prisons. So they pay, for example, like $200 a night per person. So like if the prison fills up with like, for every bed that's occupied by a person, the government will pay them $200. And so that's how the private prison makes money they're making it not from the inmates they're not you know the inmates aren't paying to be in prison Mm -hmm. it's the government that actually subsidize it because a lot of prisons i mean most prisons used to be not private prisons they were government prisons and so they weren't there for making profit um but with a shift to both private prisons and private detention centers you have this entire like it's not just like there are a few this is a major multi-billion dollar industry like globally and furthermore, it's not like, and it's growing at an absolutely crazy rate. And one of the reasons is those companies who are making absolutely tons of money off of private detention centers and private prisons, they, are, they have lobbies. And they go to the politicians and they get in there and they're like, let's just say that we can hold them for up to a year with no, no actual convictions or charges. Like, okay, right, you know, like that's how that happens. Like, that's how you can get immigrants who have committed no crime whatsoever In jail for up to a year and I mean maybe this I mean this is like 2010 but there were like hundreds of dead immigrants that ice never reported from prisons these are private prisons who are just keeping people there and people are dying and they're like well we shouldn't report that and then finally it came out that they were hiding all these deaths anyway the point is it's not only corrupt it's also systematically corrupt which is to say it's through actual like yeah paying politicians and to to change laws that increase Crime and criminality. I mean, this is just bracket whatever drug war and you know uh, prison industrial complex um, against people of color. Anyway, so like that that project is a massive money making project. Um.
0: And then what about? I've seen a lot of prisons recently have started forcing their inmates to do basically unpaid labor. Like I've been seeing one that turned into basically a textile factory, like you said, and they're getting basically fr- it's slavery almost. They're forced to work for no pay and for terrible conditions. And so do you think that's further uh, incentivizing, um, like, lobbyists and things to, like, further push criminals and, like, more
1: people into jail so that they can get more free labor? No doubt. Like, yes, 100%. That's exactly what's going on. But just to bring it back specifically to the issue of homelessness, like, anti-homeless laws, like— trace and find out who's behind these anti-homeless laws like who is paying for these and like i mean these are these are these are sometimes like PACs. these are organizations from outside the state these are organizations that are that are that are that have been contributed to by private prisons and detention centers they are very much in favor of criminalizing homelessness because they know where those homeless people are going to end up they know that those people are going to end up in jail Like, either working, in the case of people that's, like, you know, unpaid labor, like, that would be very obvious, but even paid labor, too. Or even, they don't even have to be laboring. Just existing in the prison is enough to generate money. So, like, having things be more criminalized, especially with, like, drug laws, immigration laws, and homelessness, uh, laws against homelessness, those are all ways, basically, to increase prison populations, which are disproportionately affecting, uh, yeah, people of color, trans, yeah.
3: I was just going to ask, do you think our prison systems actually perpetuate homelessness. So like someone going to jail for the first time and then not being able to get a job after that and it kind of just trickles. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, that's it. No, yeah, yeah. You don't you don't even need to finish that. Yes, exactly. Plus like a hundred other things that go into that. But like there is absolutely a cycle, which is that once people end up having a criminal record, misdemeanor, felony, it becomes harder then to get housing, to get a job. Like all criminalizing homeless people does it make it is it is it just entrenches their homelessness. It makes it more difficult for them to 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 do anything else. And then it makes them more likely to end up back in prison again so like but of course this is not like i'm this is a, this is a structural observation it's not like police are out there being like i'm making sure that this prison is getting money by like keeping this person i'm gonna go i'm gonna make sure that i arrest them make sure they end up in prison and so it's difficult for them and they'll be right back on the street so i can arrest them again put them right back into pr-. like they're not thinking that but that is very much what's going on at a structural level and th- like they just might not be reflecting on the fact that that is very much the way in which the police system works to keep to protect private property and also at the same time to criminalize the homeless people and then make money off of the criminalization of those homeless people. Like this is, yeah, Marx thought this was an absolutely horrible system but like he had no idea, no idea. Like it is way more rotten than he ever imagined and for one of these reasons is that the feedback loops have become so insidious that even the criminalization has become a profitable process and that like the people who are doing the criminalization have no, no sense that that is actually a structural feature of what they're doing is perpetuating homelessness. And that it, and that we're all paying for it. Like this, all taxpayer money to like pay for this to keep on going on. You are all paying for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: <clears throat> so I would like to hear your take on uh, on this. So if if most people can agree that slavery is bad, how have the people in power kind of conned us into supporting these systems where? Um, you know, the military industrial complex and, and the prison industrial complex and capitalism and the criminal, criminalization of homel- homeless people have, um, you know, perpetuated slavery in our country even after most people had thought that it had ended. And how has this not been something that's been in the public eye that people think about? And, you know, it, it, if uh, the country was founded on the ideals of freedom for all people, how can we? have people who still believe that just because um you know you did something wrong that you no longer deserve those rights and that you should be subjected to something that is used as like one of the most brutal horrific parts of our history and it still happens to this day
1: yeah well we should definitely distinguish between like uh, types and methods of of slavery like we're not what mark is talking about in the constitution is not chattel slavery like these these are people these people aren't owned uh, as property. Um, they are just allowed to be allowed forced labor, basically. You're allowed to force labor. That's not identical with what uh, African Americans experienced as chattel slavery, so we would distinguish between that, and I think the answer would be slavery, i.e. chattel slavery, is not legal in this country, and yeah most people would reject that out of hand now when it comes to criminal the criminal forced labor of criminals i think the short answer there is we're back there to the core features of individualism in capitalism liberalism and protestantism liberal individualism is a key feature of all of those things and it is it's the cultural ideological water that we swim in even without knowing it so the short answer is we are grow we are just We are raised to believe that we're individuals. The world treats us like we're individuals. There's every reasonable reason to believe that you're an individual. You're not an individual um, in that sense, but that's a cultural, it's a cultural product. Not all humans think of themselves as individuals. That is a very specific historical, geographical, cultural thing that people think, I'm an individual, I'm equal before the law. I work and sell my labor equally and exchange it for wages. I'm guilty of of my errors and I will atone for them through punishment in a legal system or in a religious system. That version of individualism, that's that's the short answer to why people would keep reproducing it, is it feels very natural. Um, Now how you stop reproducing that and make it not feel normal anymore, is not it's not just like, well, just stop thinking that way. Well, that's easy to say, but it's really hard to do because the world is constantly reminding you all the time, you are an individual. You you will be treated equal as an individual in all of these ways. And it feels, it just feels normal. Um, And so it's hard to realize constantly because then you're living in this alternate reality, right? That's like the world is not confirming your belief that you are not an individual in these ways. So anyway, but that's the short answer to the question is I, I think that is why it keeps getting reproduced is it's caught up in people's internal cultural identities, memories, how we were raised. Um, I mean, it's it's deep. Like, um, and there's no easy answers to getting rid of something like that.
3: Oh, I just wanted to say um, thank you, guys, for all coming. Um, thank you, Professor Nail. We really appreciate everything that you talked about today. Um.
0: Um, yeah. So, kind of what we're doing with Denver Street Stories, Christina, Alex, me, Luca, um, Amori is we say amplify unh- uh, unhoused voices, but it's also changing the narrative. And so you guys are all a part of that right now, and we really appreciate you coming, taking the time out to come do this.
3: Thank you for talking with us, it was awesome. And for Thank, you, Thank you,
1: everybody.
2: Thanks for listening to Denver Street Stories. We aim to help change the narrative surrounding homelessness by providing a platform to amplify necessary voices. We hope this sheds some light into a world often pushed aside, disrespected, or disregarded altogether. Our stories come from a myriad of people and different backgrounds that deserve to be heard and seen. So you should talk shit less, love, and listen more.